Section 17 of the Satyricon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Satyricon by Gaius Petronius Arbiter. Translated by W. C. Farbau. Volume 5. Affairs at Cretona. Chapters 125 to 131. Chapter the 125th For a long time, affairs at Cretona ran along in this manner, and Eumolpus, flushed with success, so far forgot the former state of his fortunes, that he even bragged to his followers that no one could hold out against any wish of his, and that any member of his suite who committed a crime in that city would, through the influence of his friends, get off unpunished. But... Although I daily crammed my bloated carcass to overflowing with good things, and began more and more to believe that fortune had turned away her face from keeping watch upon me, I frequently meditated, nevertheless, upon my present state, and upon its cause. Suppose, thought I, some wily legacy hunter should dispatch an agent to Africa, and catch us in our lie, or even suppose the harling servant, glutted with prosperity, should tip off his cronies, or give the whole scheme away out of spite. There would be nothing for it but flight, and, in a fresh state of destitution, a recalling of poverty which had been driven off. Gods and goddesses, how ill it fares with those living outside the law! They are always on the lookout for what is coming to them. Turning these possibilities over in my mind, I left the house, in a state of black melancholy, hoping to revive my spirits in the fresh air. But scarcely had I set foot upon the public promenade, when a girl, by no means homely, met me, and calling me Polyinus, the name I had assumed since my metamorphosis, informed me that her mistress desired leave to speak with me. "'You must be mistaken,' I answered in confusion. "'I am only a servant and a stranger, and am by no means worthy of such an honour." Chapter the 126th. You yourself, she replied, are the one to whom I was sent. But, because you are well aware of your good looks, you are proud and sell your favours instead of giving them. What else can those wavy, well-combed locks mean? Or that face, rouged and covered with cosmetics? Or that languishing, wanton expression in your eyes? Why that gait, so precise that not a footstep deviates from its place? unless you wish to show off your figure in order to sell your favours. Look at me. I know nothing about omens, and I don't study the heavens like the astrologers, but I can read men's intentions in their faces, and I know what a flirt is after when I see him out for a stroll. So if you'll sell us what I want, there's a buyer ready. But if you will do the graceful thing and lend, let us be under obligations to you for the favour. And as for your confession that you are only a common servant, by that you only fan the passion of the lady who burns for you. For some women will only kindle for canai, and cannot work up an appetite unless they see some slave or runner with his clothing girded up. A gladiator arouses one, or a mule-driver all covered with dust, or some actor posturing in some exhibition on the stage. My mistress belongs to this class, 
She jumps the fourteen rows from the stage to the gallery, and looks for a lover among the gallery gods at the back. Puffed up with this delightful chatter, Come now, confess, won't you? I queried, Is this lady who loves me yourself? The waiting maid smiled broadly at this blunt speech. Don't have such a high opinion of yourself, said she. I've never given in to any servant yet. The gods forbid that I should ever throw my arms around a gallows bird. Let the married women see to that, and kiss the marks of the scourge if they like. I'll sit upon nothing below a knight, even if I am only a servant. I could not help marvelling, for my part, at such discordant passions, and I thought it nothing short of a miracle that this servant should possess the hauteur of the mistress, and the mistress the low tastes of the wench. Each one will find what suits his taste. One thing is not for all. One gathers roses as his share, another thorns in thrall. After a little more teasing, I requested the maid to conduct her mistress to a clump of plane trees. Pleased with this plan, the girl picked up the skirt of her garment and turned into a laurel grove that bordered the path. After a short delay, she brought her mistress from her hiding place and conducted her to my side a woman more perfect than any statue. There are no words with which to describe her form, and anything I could say would fall far short. Her hair, naturally wavy, flowed completely over her shoulders. Her forehead was low, and the roots of her hair were brushed back from it. Her eyebrows, running from the very springs of her cheeks, almost met at the boundary line between a pair of eyes brighter than stars shining in a moonless night. Her nose was slightly aquiline, and her mouth was such a one as Praxiteles dreamed Diana had. Her chin, her neck, her hands, the gleaming whiteness of her feet under a slender band of gold. She turned Parian marble dull. Then, for the first time, Doris's tried lover thought lightly of Doris. O Jove, what's come to pass that thou, thine armour cast away, art mute in heaven and but an idle tale. At such a time the horns should sprout, the raging bull hold sway, or they white hair beneath swan's down conceal. Here's Dana's self, but touch that lovely form, thy limbs will melt beneath thy passion's storm. Chapter the 127th she was delighted, and so bewitchingly did she smile, that I seemed to see the full moon showing her face from behind a cloud. Then, punctuating her words with her fingers, Dear boy, if you are not too critical to enjoy a woman of wealth, who has but this year known her first man, I offer you a sister, said she. You have a brother already, I know, for I didn't disdain to ask, but what is to prevent your adopting a sister, too? I will come in on the same footing, only deem my kisses worthy of recognition, and caress me at your own pleasure. Rather let me implore you by your beauty, I replied. Do not scorn to admit an alien among your worshippers. If you permit me to kneel before your shrine, you will find me a true votary, and that you may not think I approach this temple of love without a gift, I make you a present of my brother. What? she exclaimed. Would you really sacrifice the only one without whom you could not live? The one upon whose kisses your happiness depends? Him whom you love as I would have you love me? 
such sweetness permeated her voice as she said this, so entrancing was the sound upon the listening air that you would have believed the siren's harmonies were floating in the breeze. I was struck with wonder, and dazzled by I know not what light that shone upon me, brighter than the whole heaven, but I made bold to inquire the name of my divinity. Why, didn't my maid tell you that I am called Circe? she replied. But I am not the sun-child, nor has my mother ever stayed the revolving world in its course at her pleasure. But if the fates bring us two together, I will owe heaven a favour. I don't know what it is, but some god's silent purpose is beneath this. Circe loves not Polyinus without some reason. A great torch is always flaming when these names meet. Take me in your arms, then, if you will. There's no prying stranger to fear, and your brother is far away from this spot. So saying, Circe clasped me in arms that were softer than down, and drew me to the ground which was covered with coloured flowers. With flowers like these did Mother Earth great Ida's summits strew, when Jupiter, his heart aflame, enjoyed his lawful love. There glowed the rose, the flowering rush, the violet's deep blue. From out green meadows snow-white lilies laughed, then from above this setting summoned Venus to the green and tender sod. Bright day smiled kindly on the secret amour of the god. Side by side, upon the grassy plot we lay, exchanging a thousand kisses, the prelude to more poignant pleasure. But alas, my sudden loss of vigour disappointed Circe. Chapter the 128th Infuriated at this affront, What's the matter? demanded she. Do my kisses offend you? Is my breath fetid from fasting? Is there any evil smelling perspiration in my armpits? Or if it's nothing of this kind, are you afraid of Giton? Under her eyes I flushed hotly, and, if I had any virility left, I lost it then. My whole body seemed to be inert. My queen, I cried, do not mock me in my humiliation. I am bewitched. Circe's anger was far from being appeased by such a trivial excuse. Turning her eyes contemptuously away from me, she looked at her maid. Tell me, Chrysis, and tell me truly, is there anything repulsive about me? Anything sluttish? Have I some natural blemish that disfigures my beauty? Don't deceive your mistress. I don't know what's the matter with us, but there must be something. Then she snatched a mirror from the silent maid, and after scrutinising all the looks and smiles which passed between lovers, she shook out her wrinkled earth-stained robe, and flounced off into the temple of Venus nearby. And here was I, like a convicted criminal who had seen some horrible nightmare, asking myself whether the pleasure out of which I had been cheated was a reality or only a dream. As when, in the sleep-bringing night, dreams sport with the wandering eyes, and earth spaded up, yields to light her gold that by day she denies. The stealthy hand snatches the spoils, the face with cold sweat is suffused, and fear grips him tight in her toils, lest robbers the secret have used, and shake out the gold from his breast. But when they depart from his brain, these enchantments by which he's obsessed, and truth comes again with her train, restoring perspective and pain, the phantasm lives to the last, the mind dwells with shades of the past. The misfortune seemed to me a dream, but I imagined that I must surely be under a spell of enchantment, and, for a long time, I was so devoid of strength that I could not get to my feet. But finally, my mental depression began to abate. 
little by little, my strength came back to me, and I returned home. Arrived there, I feigned illness and threw myself upon my couch. A little late, Guiton, who had heard of my indisposition, entered the room in some concern. As I wished to relieve his mind, I informed him that I had merely sought my pallet to take a rest, telling him much other gossip, but not a word about my mishap, as I stood in great fear of his jealousy, and, to lull any suspicion which he might entertain, I drew him to my side, and endeavoured to give him some proofs of my love. But all my panting and sweating were in vain. He jumped up in a rage, and accused my lack of virility and change of heart, declaring that he had for a long time suspected that I had been expending my vigour and breath elsewhere. "'No, no, darling,' I replied, "'my love for you has always been the same, but reason prevails now over love and wantonness. "'And for the Socratic continence of your love, I thank you in his name,' he replied sarcastically. Alcibiades was never more spotless when he left his master's bed. Chapter the 129th Believe me, brother, when I tell you that I do not know whether I am a man or not, I vainly protested, I do not feel like one if I am. Dead and buried lies that part in which I was once an Achilles. Giton, seeing that I was completely enervated, and fearing that it might give cause for scandal if he were caught in this quiet place with me, tore himself away and fled into an inner part of the house. He had just gone when Chrysis entered the room, and handed me her mistress's tablets, in which were written the following words. Circe to Polyinus, Greeting. Were I a wanton, I should complain of my disappointment. But as it is, I am beholden to your impotence, for by it I dallied the longer in the shadow of pleasure. Still, I would like to know how you are, and whether you got home upon your own legs, for the doctors say that one cannot walk without nerves. Young man, I advise you to beware of paralysis, for I never in my life saw a patient in such great danger. You're as good as dead, I'm sure. What if the same numbness should attack your hands and knees? You would have to send for the funeral trumpeters. Still, even if I have been affronted, I will not begrudge a prescription to one as sick as you. Ask Guiton if you would like to recover. I am sure you will get back your strength if you will sleep without your brother for three nights. So far as I am concerned, I am not in the least alarmed about finding someone to whom I shall be as pleasing as I was to you. My mirror and my reputation do not lie. Farewell, if you can. Such things will happen, said Chrysis, when she saw that I had read through the entire indictment, and especially in this city where the women can lure the moon from the sky, but we'll find a cure for your trouble. Just return a diplomatic answer to my mistress, and restore her self-esteem by frank courtesy, for, truth to tell, she has never been herself from the minute she received that affront. I gladly followed the maid's advice, and wrote upon the tablets as follows. Chapter the 130th Polyinus to Circe Greeting Dear lady, I confess that I have often given cause for offence, for I am only a man, and a young one too, but I never committed a deadly crime until to-day. You have my confession of guilt. I deserve any punishment you may see fit to prescribe. I betrayed a trust. I murdered a man. I violated a temple demand my punishment for these crimes. 
Should it be your pleasure to slay me, I will come to you with my sword. If you are content with a flogging, I will run naked to my mistress. Only bear in mind that it was not myself, but my tools that failed me. I was a soldier, and ready, but I had no arms. What threw me into such disorder I do not know, perhaps my imagination outran my lagging body. By aspiring to too much it is likely that I spent my pleasure in delay. I cannot imagine what the trouble was. You bid me beware of paralysis, as if a disease which prevented my enjoying you could grow worse. But my apology amounts briefly to this. If you will grant me an opportunity of repairing my fault, I will give you satisfaction. Farewell. After dismissing Crisis with these fair promises, I paid careful attention to my body, which had so evilly served me and, omitting the bath, I anointed myself, in moderation, with unguents, and placed myself upon a more strengthening diet, such as onions and snail's heads without condiments, and I also drank more sparingly of wine. Then, taking a short walk before settling down to sleep, I went to bed without Gaiton. So anxious was I to please her, that I feared the outcome if my brother lay tickling my side. CHAPTER THE ONE HUNDRED AND THIRTY-FIRST Finding myself vigorous in mind and body when I arose next morning, I went down to the same clump of plane-trees, though I dreaded the spot as one of evil omen, and commenced to wait for Crisis to lead me on my way. I took a short stroll, and had just seated myself where I had sat the day before, when she came under the trees, leading a little old woman by the hand. "'Well, Mr. Screamish,' she chirped, when she had greeted me, have you recovered your appetite? In the meantime, the old hag, a wine-soaked crone with twitching lips, brought out a twisted hank of different coloured yarns, and put it about my neck. She then kneaded dust and spittle, and dipping her middle finger into the mixture, she crossed my forehead with it, in spite of my protests. As long as life remains there's hope, thou rustic god, O hear our prayer, great Priapus I thee invoke, temper our arms to dare. When she had made an end of this incantation, she ordered me to spit three times, and three times to drop stones into my bosom. Each stone she wrapped up in purple after she had muttered charms over it. Then, directing her hands to my privates, she commenced to try out my virility. Quicker than thought, the nerves responded to the summons, filling the crone's hand with an enormous erection. Skipping for joy, look, Crisis, look! she cried out, see what a hare I've started for someone else to course. This done, the old lady handed me over to Crisis, who was greatly delighted at the recovery of her mistress's treasure. She hastily conducted me straight to the latter, introducing me into a lovely nook that nature had furnished with everything which could delight the eye. Shorn of its top, the swaying pine here casts a summer shade, and quivering cypress and the stately plain and berry-laden laurel a brook's wimpling waters strayed lashed into foam but dancing on again and rolling pebbles in their chattering flow twas love's own nook as forest nightingale and urban procne undertook to bear true witness hovering the gleaming grass above and tender violets wooing with song their stolen love 
fanning herself with a branch of flowering myrtle, she lay, stretched out with her marble neck resting upon a golden cushion. When she caught sight of me, she blushed faintly. She recalled yesterday's affront, I suppose. At her invitation, I sat down by her side as soon as the others had gone, whereupon she put the branch of myrtle over my face, and emboldened, as if a wall had been raised between us. Well, Mr. Paralytic, she teased, have you brought all of yourself along today? Why ask me? I replied. Why not try me instead? And throwing myself bodily into her arms, I reveled in her kisses with no witchcraft to stop me. End of section 17